Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today, we're exploring a fascinating and very timely topic, how AI can reduce bias in hiring decisions. And for that, I'm joined by Dr. Frida Polly, CEO and co-founder of Pymetrics, a company that uses neuroscience and AI to improve the accuracy, fairness, and diversity of hiring. Frida is an award-winning Harvard and MIT-trained neuroscientist turned entrepreneur who contributes frequently to discussions on ethical AI and technology. We cover a lot of ground in our short time together, including the proverbial light bulb moment that prompted her to co-found the company, why soft skills are critical for accurate and fair talent matching, and the challenges of being a woman founder and running a tech company. The work that Frida and her team do is on the cutting edge of using technology to drive real diversity results, so I encourage you to explore more on this topic. Hopefully, this podcast will pique your interest. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Frida Polly. Frida Polly, welcome. Thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's so great to have you on the show today. So I always like to try and start somewhere interesting. Um, and in your case, it's in prison. Um, but lest the audience get the wrong idea. Um, I was going to say that sounds terrible, but it, okay. It, it does, but I, I want to know more about you spent a year working in a prison. Tell us where that was and what were you doing working in a prison? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I'll try to give you the short answer of that. Um, I was in Massachusetts. Uh, I had just decided that I did not want, or sorry, I had done all sorts of schoolwork to become a, a doctor, a medical doctor, and then worked in a wet lab, which is a lab where you sort of work with animals and bodily fluids. And after three weeks, I, I quit because I couldn't deal with bodily fluids. And so I said, wow, that was a huge learning uh, experience for me. The next time I go into graduate work, I want to make sure that the the worst possible sort of experience that I might have, or not worst, but most challenging experience, I do that up front, so that I don't spend a lot of time um, in class without sort of you know a challenging practical experience that will then lead me in a different direction. So as I was considering um, PhD programs in in neuroscience, I thought you know if I had to work with a challenging clinical population, what would it be? And so I thought a prison, prison, that sounds challenging. And so that's how I ended up working for a year. Um, and actually, it was, it was a really eye-opening, actually incredibly um, rewarding experience. Um, not to say it wasn't challenging for a variety of reasons when you work in a prison, lots of challenges. But I really was, I won't say life-changing, that sounds too dramatic. But the, the women that were, it was a women's prison, I was teaching substance abuse, recovery, and anger management classes. And, you know, the personal stories of the folks that were in there were really heartbreaking at times, you know. So really, I, I'm so glad that I did that um, on so many levels and taught me that that was actually rewarding. So I thought, okay, well, great. I like working with people. I can pursue this uh, doctorate in, uh, in behavioral science. Uh, that will work for me. So. So you put a lot of effort into your doctorate in behavioral science, and then you ended up making another shift in your career to founding Pymetrics. So every founder or entrepreneur has, you know, the their origin story. That's the proverbial light bulb moment going off. So take us along that journey. You know, you spent years in the lab. How did you end up then finding founding Pymetrics? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I would say that what I do still is applied behavioral science. So actually, I think that my career tra trajectory since uh, since that fateful year I spent working in a prison in my mid-20s has actually not changed that much. But so, you know, I spent 10 years as an academic um, neuroscientist at Harvard and MIT studying the human brain, working with clinical, more clinical populations, um, you know, doing assessments, doing all sorts of things. Loved what I was doing. Ultimately ended up feeling like I wanted to do something with more scalable, real world impact, right? Um, and so I thought to myself, okay, great. How could I do that? I could become an entrepreneur and find a way to use our science in a, in quote, scalable way. So I went to the business school at Harvard to get an MBA to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I commercialize the science? Um, and it was there the proverbial light bulb went off because I spent two years watching, you know, recruiting basically happen in front of me for two years. And again, I would say that the the Harvard MBAs are an extremely overserved population, meaning we have all resources available that one could ever ask for. And even there, the experience was suboptimal, meaning people were quite frustrated. They were like oftentimes quite wrong in the decisions that they made, meaning they would spend six months trying to get an internship. And then after two days, they'd be like, I hate this. This is terrible. Um, you know, companies were spending a tremendous amount of money and yet a lot of people were not, you know, staying successfully. So I thought, oh my goodness, if this is happening here with the most overserved population on the planet, I can only imagine how um, suboptimal the process is elsewhere. And again, the biggest complaint people had was I didn't understand that I wasn't a good fit for the job. It's not that I wasn't smart enough to do the job or whatever enough to do the job. It's I didn't understand what the job entailed and it doesn't actually suit me, right? So Pymetrics is all about understanding soft skills, not your experience, but your soft skills, meaning your cognitive, social, and emotional aptitudes for a role. And that is very hard to glean from a piece of paper like a resume. Um, and that's what we think is so critical to making that match not only more accurate, but also more um, equitable from a sort of societal perspective as well. So, so entrepreneurs help fi fix you know, really tough problems. And in your case, this is the sort of the hiring process, the hiring system, yep. human capital. So take us a step backwards. and and help explain um, the thinking behind Pymetrics, sort of the changing sure. systems and not people sure. approach. So I'll answer that question in two parts. So what Pymetrics is trying to do is really make, take, put the human back in human resources, right? We have resigned ourselves to trying to glean something about someone's personality, their cognitive style from the resume, right? Oh, they played sports. Oh, they must be a team player. Um, oh, you know, they were in the debate club. That means their communication skills are good. But really what you're trying to do is extrapolate from, you know, a two-dimensional piece of paper. What Pymetrics tries to do is create a three-dimensional portrait of someone that tells you about their thinking style, their emotional style, their social, socio-emotional interaction style, that is a far more complete picture about someone, right? And that is really what is lacking, right? You might have the re requisite experience, or you may lack the requisite experience, and that actually doesn't tell us that much about whether you will be successful in your next job. It's it's interesting, but, but true, that experience uh, alone is really not that predictive. So that's what Pymetrics is trying to do, the big thorny problem of, of evaluating a person's fit um, to a role, right? And then I think that from a, you know, sort of societal equity perspective, I think focusing on the holistic picture of someone really allows us to bypass some of the societal problems we have with respect to um, bias. And what I mean by that is we have, you know, set up a situation where 
historically we have hired more white men into certain roles. The way that our brain deals with that is to create a stereotype of success in that particular field as being equated with Caucasian, being Caucasian and being male, right? Um, and what we have done in the last decade or so is try to change a person's mind, right? Say, don't think, don't have that stereotype about success in that role. Let me change you through unconscious bias training, through diversity training, to think that anyone could be in that role. Unfortunately, that is just not the way the human brain works. The human brain is actually quite like an algorithm. It takes in all the data that it sees and says, oh, well, if all the people I see that are successful in that role are Caucasian and male, it must be that there's something about that group that makes them successful. So our focus on trying to change human minds has patently failed, and there's lots of data to support this. What we need to do is change the systems, and one of those systems is the system of, of evaluation, right? And that's the beauty of Pymetrics. I can actually, because soft skills like cognitive, social, and emotional traits are equally distributed in the population, meaning women are just as likely to have them as men, and you know, Caucasians just as likely as other ethnic minorities, I can actually take a group of successful, primarily white, primarily male folks, and build a profile that can be equally found in women, in people of color, and so on and so forth. And so you don't have to go and change some person's mind to say success can be different, can look different. You can actually just have an algorithm aid a person in getting to that decision. Does that make sense? And that is far more scalable and far more um, likely to lead to success than like I say, like trying to change a person's mind is like playing whack-a-mole. Okay, you change this person's mind for a hot second and then this person, you know, that's just not scalable. And, and generally speaking, the data does not support that it's effective. So you spoke about systems and many of our listeners will be familiar with Daniel Kahneman and his work on the system one and system yeah. two and fast thinking and slow thinking. Um, yeah. Just explain your work yeah. through that lens. Absolutely. Sure, absolutely. So another way to explain what I just said is to think about Daniel Kahneman's fast and, and slow thinking. So, you know, the fast thinking system, system one, is this uh, sort of, you know, um, rapid system that relies heavily on stereotypes or pattern recognition, right? So ergo, I've seen a lot of white men be successful in this role. I therefore think this role must be filled by a white man. That may not be a conscious thought. I would never say that consciously. That's my That would be my system two thinking. But my system one has sort of developed this profile of, okay, success looks like white men, right? System two might actually say, no, 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 it could be a woman, it could be a person of color, blah, blah, blah. But that that is a separate thinking system. So what happens in recruiting, right, is a person is given six seconds to look at a resume, okay? Now, it's not the slow system two process that's occurring in those six seconds. It's that rapid decision-making, right? And so therefore, that's why you see this really significant unconscious bias creep in in these moments is because system one thinking is taking over. It's rapid. It's automatic. I've got to make this decision. I've got 250 resumes, blah, blah, blah. I'm feeling stressed. And, you know, that shows up in the data. So researchers have submitted the exact same resume with a white sounding name like John Williams or a black sounding name like Jamal Williams. And with the identical resume, all of the facts are identical. John Williams get 10 interviews and Jamal gets seven. That is system one thinking kicking into gear, right? And so trying to change that through diversity training programs, through unconscious bias training programs has been shown to be an abject failure. We have lots of data on that now. What we need to do is harness our system two thinking 
to create systems that work better and can sort of override the system one thinking. So does that help in terms of explaining yes, it in yes, system it one, system two? Yep. So let's drill down a little bit on this point about diverse workforces. There's been a lot of discussion about this in, in yep. the past uh, few months. Why is the workforce not more diverse, especially when it comes to racial equity? Well, I mean, we just, we basically explained one of the big reasons, right? Which is that, you know, they're, Human reading, humans reading resumes um, is still the primary form by which you go from, you know, hundreds of thousands of applicants to, you know, a thousand, right? 90% of people or more get cut just by resume review. Um, and that can be done by a human or it can be done by sort of keyword searches. But a lot of it is still being done by processes that are not unbiased. And the human resume reading process is, you know, exhibit A in terms of the fact that it's not unbiased. So, I just gave you the example. So the identical resume with a with a black sounding name only gets seven interviews for every ten that John gets. That's that's a huge hit right there to racial equity, right? So everything from recruiting processes, you know, to interviewing processes after that, to inclusion processes after that. I mean, every single aspect of the system, I think, needs to be examined, not with an eye to how can we change this, you know, Joe Schmo's brain, right? Because that's whack-a-mole. It's how do we change the entire system to make it more equitable? And, you know, again, unbiased technology, like what Pymetrics provides, is a component of that. There are multiple components and multiple techniques that we can use um, to, to achieve that. But it really needs to focus on systems, not human minds. What about the legal framework in the U.S.? Yes. So the legal framework is another thing that I think, uh, you know, doesn't get a lot of attention because, you know, it's the legal framework that sounds extremely tedious. Why would we why would we need to do that? Right. I think, you know, the legal framework, particularly in the U.S., was created, you know, over 50 years ago. Um, and unfortunately, even though the equal you know, the framework um, was built off of the Civil Rights Act, meaning you can't, you shouldn't discriminate against protected classes and so on and so forth. It was done at such a time where the workforce was so homogenous that they had to create some loopholes. Otherwise, they would have basically had all of their hiring practices be illegal. So they created some loopholes that unfortunately now just perpetuate this, this situation where employment law is actually not that hard to, to have tools, right? that are not abiding by the principles of the Civil Rights Act, but are still legal because of, of these loopholes. So even though it's not a very sexy area, um, a lot of people don't want to get into employment law, I think it's actually a critical component of what needs to change. We need to close up some of these loopholes. And, and mechanisms to do that exist, right? It's just having the, the wherewithal to, to actually start to think about how would we overhaul some of these things. Because so long as, so I'll give you a perfect example, right? There are certain hiring tools um, whereby um, Caucasians are three times more likely to be selected um, than minority groups. Now, that sounds horrible, right? That doesn't abide by any kind of civil rights principles. However, these tools are legal as per these loopholes. And basically, it's a what's called a business necessity defense. And if you can prove business necessity, you're actually allowed to use this tool, even though it really shows great um, you know, racial inequity. The problem is now we have better tools that can that can give you that same business value and don't have that sort of very strong impact on racial equity. But the laws haven't really been updated to say, hey, by the way, you really need to be using these more advanced 
tools that don't have a negative impact on racial equity and can still provide that business necessity, they still allow for these other tools to exist. And it's a little bit like as if we allowed diesel cars to be running around, there would be people that would be fine using a diesel engine because of X, Y, and Z and wouldn't have updated to an electric car, so to speak. Does that make sense? So we really have to update, I think, our legal framework um, to make those options either you know, less legal or less compelling. So earlier on, you mentioned the importance of soft skills and I guess testing for soft skills. Uh, they are critical for accurate and fair talent Absolutely. matching. Um, yep. Talk a bit about those, which soft skills you're looking for and, and sure. how you're testing for them and how sure. firms, and, firms and their evaluation can kind of blend hard and soft skills to create yeah. a more diverse workforce. Absolutely. So, you know, soft skills are have been around for a long time. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with the Myers-Briggs, right? That's kind of the most obvious example of a soft skill tool, right? But there are a lot of them and, and you can, you know, poke around. Um, soft skills really talk about uh, a way of thinking about a person that focuses more on their inherent aptitude rather than what they have learned, right? So there are a lot of different reasons that soft skills are a really beneficial component to you know any kind of workforce decision. One is that again they provide a more holistic picture. Two is that they are forward facing, right? A hard skill evaluation or resume just tells you what you have done, tells you nothing about what you could do. And I think especially in this day and age where Deloitte says that the shelf life of a hard skill is three years, we should absolutely focus on what you could do, not when what on what you have on what you have done. Um, and you know la Last but not least, they are far more equitably distributed in the population than our hard skills. So again, I'm not arguing that one should never look at hard skills. I think obviously there's a there's a benefit to that. If you need an engineering degree for something, you need an engineering degree, and unfortunately that might introduce your a candidate pool that is you know more male and more Caucasian, for example, right? Because uh, engineering degrees are not equitably distributed or not equally distributed. However, you may also want to know, okay, well, what else does someone need to be successful in that role and weight those soft skills equally? Does that make sense? So even if I'm now hiring somebody who doesn't have an, an engineering degree, but has the experience, um, you know, having, you know, been through a boot camp or something like that, and they show sort of the requisite soft skill profile, that can be a fantastic way to really include people in the workforce that historically may not have been considered because of, you know, sort of traditional disadvantage they may have experienced. So, so I think it's a combination. Okay. A lot of firms over the last few months have been implementing um, unconscious bias training. And one of the presentations of yours that I saw, you cited, I guess, a meta-analysis of 30 studies that yep. found no evidence that these programs yep. work and that they actually create false confidence. So yes. um, should firms be throwing out their unconscious bias training altogether or using a combination of the training with uh, de-biasing tools such as AI? Yeah, so unconscious bias training is what I was mentioning um, in terms of things that we know to be ineffective, meaning that is trying to change the human mind. Um, and again, the system one thinking, which is essentially the same thing as unconscious bias, Again, go read Daniel Kahneman's book. You can't eradicate it with a four-hour training or even a four-day training, right? So what I would say about unconscious bias training is just to repeat that meta-analysis, it's completely ineffective in removing unconscious bias, right? So if you're just doing unconscious bias training for the sake of sort of educational purposes and to tell everyone, hey, there's such a thing as unconscious bias, fantastic, keep doing it. If you then expect that training to remove unconscious bias from your workforce, that is where you should absolutely not do that. That is... That is not going to happen. So what I would say is as an educational value to your employees, great, educate them about unconscious bias training. Do not expect 
that that is going to change anything about your hiring processes. And I would say then is that is what I mean by then you have to implement systems, right? Of that include metrics, accountability, transparency, and I would argue some form of technology that really allows you to follow through on increasing diversity in the workforce. So one of the challenges for coders is fighting their own bias in their algorithms. Um, yep. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between unbiased and de-biased data sure. and mm -hmm. how Pymetrics leverages both to help organizations diversify their workforce? Sure. Yeah. So, well, you touched upon something super interesting, which is do the people that write the code or write the software influence um, the outcome of an algorithm? And I would say, yes, they do, because I think that they're asking. So I think if you have a diverse set of folks building the algorithms, and again, you know, Pymetrics was founded by two women. So I think by definition, we had that perspective from the start. We questioned, can algorithms, you know, we really thought about all of the different ways that you would want to implement to create a, an algorithm that is that is unbiased, right? I think if two men had created this company, we wouldn't really have, have put that much thought into it, quite frankly, because our lived experience would have been quite different. Um, and so what we did from the very outset are two critical features of what makes Pymetrics able to be unbiased, right? One is that we focused on soft skills rather than other types of data that inherently, as I mentioned to you before, are far less biased. It's not to say there isn't a little bit of bias here and there, but overall, they are far, far less biased than some of the other data sets. And data really, really matters, right? So the type of data you're using is super important. And then the second thing is that we started out from the very beginning by auditing our algorithms, by testing them to see what are the impacts on women, on people of color, you know, and so on. And we did that before we ever released any algorithm. That is not something that is sort of standard in these types of um, you know, algorithm building processes, but we made that standard. So I think the combination of using unbiased data um, and auditing our algorithms, we did both of those things as a re direct result of having a more diverse technical team, which was women co-founded, you know? And so I think all of those three things kind of come together um, to create the potential for unbiased technology. And by the way, we're not the only folks that create unbiased tech. There are companies like TechSkill or HiredScore or Applied or three companies that I'm very confident have that same um, ability. And interestingly, they're all women-led, right? So I do think there is truth to the fact that if you have a more diverse, less typical um, technology team, you are likely to think outside of the box and really think about diversity first. So I'd love to pivot just a little bit to, I guess, what you've called sort of the, the single digit club, uh, sure. a woman founder and CEO, uh, the challenges of being, a, so I guess, a female founder uh, and a woman running a tech company, what has it been like for you? And for those who may be listening, who may be considering, should I even think about founding a company? What should yep. they know? Right. Um, well, I would say it's been, aside from having children, um, the most rewarding thing I've ever done. So I would highly, highly recommend it. But very similar to having children, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. So I think both of those things are true. And I, and I think, look, starting a company, whether whatever sex or race you are, is extremely difficult. So let's not sugarcoat things, right? I think on top of that, there is ample data to show that women are at a massive fundraising disadvantage. Um, you know, it's, you know, they're a, a disadvantage for a lot of different things, right? And it's just like any kind of ism. Can you say that that particular interaction you had with an investor right there was because you were a woman? You can never say that, right? It's in the data, in the aggregate that we can say that where women raise, you know, significantly less money than men. Um, and even it was this great MIT study where they had either a man or a woman pitch uh, the same exact um, idea to investors and women got, you know, half the funding that men did, right? So it's proven by data. 
Um, and I've had the same experience where I've gotten rejection letters from, you know, investors, uh, very well-known ones that said something along the lines of like, you know, you're amazing, your team is amazing, your technology is amazing, your growth is amazing. There's just something that makes us unconvinced. And I'm like, hmm, what could that something be? Let me guess, right? Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, back to the single digits club, I think, you know, for better or worse, it's kind of, you know, this idea that, um, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll answer this by telling you a story. So I was presenting Pymetrics at a conference at Stanford last year before the pandemic hit. And I had someone in the audience, a professor asked me a question of like, well, do you feel bad um, that you're potentially putting women in harm's way um, by recommending them for roles that they're, that are typically, you know, male, male dominated. And I just sort of was surprised by that question because no, I don't feel bad. And by the way, I'm an example of that. Um, and if we don't do that, how are we ever going to change that pattern recognition? Your brain is never going to associate females with CEOs unless we literally put some women into that role, even though, yeah, their experience might be harder than a male CEO, right? So I think it's just this unfortunate situation that we're in that I don't know what the solution is other than to say, yes, we must forge ahead. Yes, it's not as pleasant as we would like. However, we can take great pride in the fact that, you know, we're kind of pioneers, um, and, and carry on. And I think if we take the approach of, well, you know, it's, it's putting women in harm's way or it's more challenging for women. Yes, all of those things are true. But again, every sort of, you know, um, improvement in society has not been without its, its challenges. So I think we just have to, you know, we have to carry on. So, and the one thing I will say, Lauren, that I just want to, you know, put out to this audience that I think is critical. Um, a lot of times, and I think this is extremely unfortunate, people really have equated diversity hiring with lowering one standards. And I want to address that head on because there is no data to support that. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say this plainly, there's lots of data to support that for a typical candidate, let's say you're, you know, for a math position, right? You're used to hiring Caucasians or males. People actually, and there's an MIT study on this as well, people will actually lower their standards for someone that they think looks like the right candidate, right? Um, and and actually have higher standards for people who are non-traditional candidates. So this whole idea that to hire diversity means lowering the standards is actually the opposite. If you're hiring homogeneity, quite frankly, you're often, often lowering your standards, right? Um, and I do wanna hit that head on because I think we've made this extremely unfortunate association in our minds that if we hire more diversity, oh my God, we're letting in all these unqualified people. And that just could not be further from the truth. And not only does Pymetrics help with um, in making the workforce more inclusive, we can actually point you to strong evidence that we predict performance, right? So that that just sort of, you know, nails that in terms of, you know, saying, no, it's not a trade-off that you're making. Like, oh, I either hire a diversity candidate or someone who performs well. That's just absolutely false. And I think it's back to this narrative that people have in their heads that, you know, unfortunately, it's back to this narrative of that, oh, only sort of, you know, sort of traditional candidates perform well. That's, that's just not true, yeah. you know? That's an excellent point. And thanks for making it so so plainly yeah. and so forcefully. Um, you mentioned that the, the firm was founded by two women. And I had glanced uh, at the website uh, last week. And you have a pretty good representation on your, your team of, of women and ethnic minorities. So are you eating your own cooking when it comes to uh, hiring a diverse workforce? <laughs> I was joking with you with you about this. I think, you know, we've got some good hors d'oeuvres and first courses. We need some some better main courses, meaning I think we do eat our own cooking. We could always do better. You know what I mean? I think we're always it's a constant improvement. Um and, and we need to eat more of our own cooking. But yes, absolutely. We one thousand percent uh, you know, sort of subscribe to all of the things that I just said. Um, we use both 
you know, processes that are unbiased as well as technology that will help us get there. We have um, goals that we're, you know, working towards. We have clear transparency and accountability and all the rest of it. So we're doing all the right things and eventually our cooking will become, you know, Michelin star uh, rated, uh, even though we might not be there quite yet, but we're, I think we're well on our way. So yes. So some of people in the audience may be at small firms and it sounds like the sort of the hiring system overall is pretty broken. Um, where should small firms start? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we're a small firm, we're 120 people. Um, and so I think, you know, l let me just outline the things that, you know, are known to be, um, are known to, to work. So one is having clear goals, right? If you have a goal of improving, you know, some form of diversity within your workforce, have a goal and, and state it out loud, right? That's easy. There's no money in that. There's no money needed to do that. The second is transparency. Make your metrics um, available to your entire workforce and possibly the public as well, right? So you can hold yourself, you know, sort of, you know, be transparent about that. Third is accountability. Make sure that people know like, hey, if I'm supposed to be, you know, hiring more diverse people, who who's accountable? for that? Is it just my chief diversity officer? Is it everyone in HR? Is it all the hiring managers make that super, super clear? I think all three of those things require zero dollars, right? So I don't think that saying, oh, I'm a small company, you know, is really um, a reason not to tackle this problem. I think, quite frankly, the harder part is it takes a little bit more effort, right? A lot of people go to LinkedIn to find their next candidate and nothing against LinkedIn. But I think, unfortunately, again, it's back to this sort of like, um, their, their algorithms are just going to feed you more of the same, right? So if you're looking for to expand, you know, diversity talent, you might have to actually go to some platforms that specialize in that, you know, like Dropwell or Power to Fly or something that is, you know, cater, catering to that. Not because you can't find them on LinkedIn, it's just more, more work, right? So you're going to have to go outside of your usual channels. Um, and the same is true for networks, right? I mean, I think that's another thing that especially small companies struggle with is, well, my entire network is unfortunately overly Caucasian, right? I mean, that was definitely something that I had to had to find ways to mitigate because, you know, coming out of, you know, academia as I did, it was definitely true, right? Um, and so I think there are ways. I don't think they cost money. I think it's just expanding beyond your sort of typical way of doing things. So before I move on to, I have two questions that I pose to all, sure. all the audience. Uh, just very briefly, I read that you came to the U.S. at 18. Uh, yeah. how, where, where did you start out and how did you end up here? <laughs> sure. My dad is Italian. My mom is British. They met at Wharton. <laughs> um, then they went back to Italy. And so I actually moved all over the place growing up. I lived in Italy, uh, France, uh, Spain, Switzerland, and Canada growing up. And so I came here for college because... Um, <laughs> Because I knew even back then that I might have multiple careers and I didn't want to go uh, to the UK for schooling because if you redeclare your major, you have to start all over again. That sounded horrible because I knew I would redeclare my major like five times, which I did. <laughs> so I applied to school in the US and that's how I ended up coming to this country. But then I didn't become a citizen until quite some time um, after that. And I think as you saw my LinkedIn post, I had the pleasure of voting in my first US election, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. So that's very exciting. Yes. Well, so that's, congratulations that's on that. Yes. So the final two questions, um, and I guess long time uh, sure. listeners will, will know what's coming. The first <laughs> is, and uh, this is an idea I got from NASA Education. They ask sure. students to think about if you're going on a long duration space flight and you can take one object or item with you, what would that be? So I always ask, if you could take one object, or what would it be? 
my gosh. Well, I mean, it would be a phone that would work in space. <laughs> <laughs> well, assuming that they had telecommunications in space, what else would you take? What other thing? <laughs> yeah, okay, I definitely would need that. Um, well, I think what I, so what I meant oh. by my phone is I use it for reading and podcast listening. So I would need some constant stream of information that I was learning from. I'm a lifelong learner. Um, and so I need to, to, to always be learning new things. I think that's just kind of a, a truism. So I don't know if it's like an endless supply of books on Kindle or, uh, or something like that. So the, the final question, and this is something uh, we started doing, I guess, during the pandemic, we call it the, the ray of sunshine question. And that is, you know, looking at the pandemic, um, what do you hope will be sort of one lasting, long-term positive outcome as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that I really hope that um, greater equity um, in the workforce is one of those things, because I think that we really, you know, I hope that it shows us that we really need to be committed to that. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, is greater flexibility in the workforce. I think that one of the benefits um, of the pandemic has been um, for people to be more flexible in all sorts of working arrangements. Now, granted, that's not possible in all working arrangements, but where it is possible, I would, I would highly argue that it is very conducive to having people be more productive if, if, if they can be as flexible as possible. That doesn't mean everyone has to work from home indefinitely. It means allowing the flexibility to, to work in different environments without there being this requisite five days a week office, um, office time. So those are my two main things. Well, it's been terrific having you on the show today, uh, Frida. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.